Dear Lord, Father, you are a good God. You are an amazing God, Lord. Father, we could sing many hymns, but I'm afraid even the most beautiful of hymns, Lord, the most eloquent of, the, the, the highest eloquence of speech, Father, the deepest thoughts, Lord, it, it cannot reach the true reality of how immense and great you are, Lord. Be with us, Lord. Father, I pray as we go into your word this morning, may your word, oh God, minister to your people as a physician ministers to a patient. Guide us in these things, Lord. Let all here look past me and let them see you, oh God. And this, I know that you will be faithful. I know you hear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're continuing our study in the book of Acts this morning. So please turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 16. And as you're turning there, I just want to open up uh, by way of, of introduction as well as recap. So we're in the book of Acts, and that's for all of you who are joining us this morning and you're not familiar with the book of Acts. It's the Acts of the Apostles, or more, more specifically or more accurately, it's the act of God, of the Holy Spirit working through his apostles. And last week, we, we concluded chapter 15. We finished off, and I'll have you remember, just by way of recap so we understand the context, that the main theme, really, the prevailing theme of chapter 15 was this topic of circumcision. More specifically, this question, whether circumcision was necessary for salvation. Remember in the beginning of chapter 15, Paul, Barnabas, they're in Antioch. That's chapter 15, verses 1 to 2. And they're confronted with this, this group of men known as Judaizers, and basically what the Judaizers are saying, they're saying, in order for the Gentiles to be partakers of this salvation that Christ has, has given, they must first be circumcised. In essence, they must first become Jews, to which Paul and Barnabas vehemently contradict them. In fact, the scripture says they, they entered no small dissension and debate with them. And so Paul, he takes the matter to Jerusalem, and this is known as the Jerusalem Council. We went over that already. And the verdict of the council was this. It was clear, circumcision is not necessary for salvation. We are saved by grace. Jew or Gentile, we are saved in the same manner grace, the grace of God, not works, that is not the works of man, but only the works of Christ. In fact, in fact it was Peter, I'll have you remember, that he said this in verse 15, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 11, if you just want to turn there and see, he says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will, Jew as well as Gentile, saved by the same means. However, he does give some rules. He does, he does give them some wisdom, rather, rather than rules. He says, the Gentiles, though, they ought to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Now, Pastor Caleb told us last week, or two weeks prior, that uh, sexual morality is always wrong. However, these other things were put in place in order to not offend the Jews. And we're going to see more of that in the beginning of chapter 16 today. And so Paul and Barnabas, they're then chosen to go back to Antioch in order to uh, begin delivering these decisions from the council. And they do that. And then they remain in Antioch. And then last week, as when we concluded chapter 15, it ends with Paul and Barnabas separating. They separate from each other. They go different directions. And the reason they separated was due to a disagreement. And what was the matter of this disagreement? What was the subject matter? Well, it was as to whether they should bring John Mark with them on their travels. Paul didn't want to bring Mark. Barnabas did. 
whether, whether they should bring Mark with them back on their travels to the churches that they had visited on their first missionary journey, the ones that they had founded. And so Paul takes Silas and goes, and Barnabas takes Mark, and they go to Cyprus. And now they're separated. And so now we enter chapter 16. Hopefully that gives some context. Now chapter 16, understand this right away, at the forefront of this message, like the entire book of Acts, it's all about the providence and the sovereignty of God. The providence and the sovereignty of God in the spreading of the gospel, of his gospel to all the nations. It is God fulfilling the great commission through his people. The providence of God. Providence meaning it's, the, it's, it's God's hand working all events, orchestrating all the circumstances. The sovereignty of God. Him exercising his right to do as he wishes. And so like the entire book of Acts, chapter 16 is no different. We're going to see this providence and sovereignty of God in the spreading of his gospel. Now before I continue, I want to say this. There are three things that I find men, when I say men, men, I don't just mean men, all you wives looking at your husbands, men, human, that they hold most dear. I haven't been alive very long, only 21 years, but I do find this to be true, both from introspections of myself, knowing myself, and also outward observations of others. And I find these three things are at the pretty top of the list. First is our rights. Second is our plans. And third is our choice. I'll say that again. Our rights, we as Americans, we know this very well. We fought an entire war for our rights. We love our rights. Our rights are some of the most important things to us. Our plans. We all fashion plans. And our choice, our ability to choose. And yet, I also find that it's also these three things which seem, seem to be the greatest hindrance at times to both the spreading of the gospel and the salvation of souls. Now, why am I saying that? I'm not saying this arbitrarily. I'm not saying this without reason. I have a purpose. I'm building up to something. The reason I'm saying this is because it's precisely these three things, our rights, our plans, our choice, that are going to be examined in the lives of three people, and they're going to be the three characters we're going to see in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. And who are they? Timothy, Paul, and Lydia. Timothy's rights, Paul's plans, Lydia's choice. And it's my earnest desire that by the end of this message, we may all learn to forego our rights, to let go of our plans, and to recognize our inability to choose. That we learn, to sum it all up, to surrender all. In fact, that is the title of this message today, Surrender All. And to surrender all so that men might be saved and so that God may be glorified. And so without further ado, let's turn to Acts chapter 16 and let's read from verses 1 to 15. Follow along as I read. Verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was, named, was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily." 
When they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. We have a lot to cover this morning, and we don't have a lot of time. Our three points for this morning, so you could better follow along with me, are first, Timothy's rights, second, Paul's plans, and thirdly, Lydia's choice. So let's begin with Timothy's rights. Look to verse 1 again. Verse 1 says this. It says that Paul came to two cities, Derbe and Lystra. Now these were the same cities Paul had visited earlier in his life. He, he visited these back, even the book of Acts. It's recorded in chapter 14. Lystra in particular, I'll have you recall, It's a bit infamous. It was the place where Paul, upon going there and healing a crippled man, was worshipped as a Greek god. He was worshipped as Hermes. And then, funny enough, as often happens in Paul's life, subsequently, he was then stoned, and presuming that he was dead, they took him and dragged him out of the city. Kind of sounds like Christ, right? Praising him one day crying, crucifying the next. And while he was there, the scripture says what? It says, they, they came across a disciple named Timothy. Now, we're, we're familiar. I hope many of you are familiar with this Timothy. You've heard this name before. Marco actually spoke about him in, in his exhortation. This is the, the Timothy to whom the letters, the epistles of 1st and 2nd Timothy are addressed. And, and, and this first chapter gives us some information about Timothy, as well as other places in the Bible. And I, I just want to introduce Timothy a little. Let's, let's understand who he is. First fact about Timothy is this, that you must understand. He was the son of a mixed marriage. Where do I get that? Verse 1. What does it say? Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Okay, so his mother whose name, if you want to know, was Eunice. How do I know her name was Eunice? Did I know her? No, I didn't know her. Her name was Eunice because we know that from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. And she was a Jew. However, his father, who is not named anywhere in Scripture, was a Greek. So, so he was the, the son of a, of a mixed marriage, the offspring of a Jewish woman and a Gentile man. That's very important. Second thing we know about Timothy is he had a good reputation. Verse 2, look what it says. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. He had a good reputation, Timothy. Uh, Timothy, in the surrounding area, notice I, I find it amazing. It doesn't just say in Lystra. It says in Iconium. Uh, that, that was a, another uh, city close by. So this is the guy in this whole region. If you said his name, people know who he is. Oh, Timothy. I know Timothy. He's a good guy. He had a good reputation. Fact number three, he was a young man. Now, where do I get that? Well, that's not in the book of Acts, but it is in one of the epistles that Paul wrote to Timothy in 
1 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul says to him, do not let anyone despise you. Don't let anyone despise you, Timothy, meaning despise, not hate, but think less of, for your youth. So what do, what do we have before us? We have a, a young, godly, half-Jew, half-Gentile man with a good reputation. And so Paul, he takes notice of young Timothy. And verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him to accompany him on his missionary expedition, on his missionary travels. And so that's, that's, that's what he does. He takes Timothy. But then something interesting happens, and this is, the, this is really where we're going to remain for this point. Look what it says later in verse 3. It says, And he took him, that is Paul took Timothy, and he took him and circumcised him. He took him and circumcised him. Now, what's up with that? Why is that significant? Why is that maybe a bit perplexing, confusing to some of us? Because didn't we just take care of this? Wasn't that just all of chapter 15? Wasn't it just the last chapter that we had the Judaizers and Paul contradicting the Judaizers, and then the Jerusalem council, and then them saying, hey, circumcision is not necessary for salvation. So why on earth would Paul take Timothy and circumcise him? Well, we have a because. That helps us because it gives us the cause. It gives us the reason he does this. Now, first, note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say Paul took Timothy and circumcised him because he wanted him to be saved. Does it say that? If your Bible says that, it's not the Bible. No. Notice it doesn't even say he took him and circumcised him because, you know, he wanted him to be more holy. He wants him to be more righteous. No. I said it before. I'll say it again. I'll say it to my last dying breath. We're saved by grace and grace alone. No work can justify. So what's the because? Why does he do this? Let's read. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews. Because of the Jews. Let me say what this means, and then we're going to expound it. We're going to delve into it. Paul didn't circumcise Timothy in order to save him. Paul didn't circumcise Timothy because he wanted to be more righteous. Paul circumcised Timothy to appease cultural expectations. The cultural expectations of the Jews. Now, this might be confusing to our, uh, uh, our modern-day uh, sensibilities. We might not understand this. But this was, a, this was a, a type of moray in the Jewish culture. You see, Timothy, what was the first fact we learned about him? He was half Jewish. He was half Gentile, but he was also half Jewish. So, his uncircumcision, by him being uncircumcised, this was going to prove to be a hindrance and an obstacle in his ministry. Why? Because Timothy, being a Jewish man, even a half-Jewish man, he was expected by the Jewish culture, by the Jewish mores, to be circumcised. Because of the Jews, Paul says. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us uh, a lot about these Jews. It doesn't tell us if these Jews were believers. It doesn't tell us if these Jews were unbelievers. But really, it doesn't matter. Because either way, Timothy's state of uncircumcision, it could, it could and would be an impediment and an obstacle. You see, if these Jews, if they were unbelievers, then they wouldn't view Timothy as, you know, the nice godly uh, man with a good reputation. They wouldn't view him as a, as, a, as a good, young, godly man. No, they'd view him as a Jewish apostate. 
They'd view him as someone who chose to forsake his Jewish heritage in favor of his Gentile heritage. Forsake his, his, his Jewish heritage, his Hebrew culture, in, in favor of his pagan culture. And so, to these Jews, if, if, they, if they were unbelieving Jews who Paul sought to evangelize, they would be greatly offended by this. They wouldn't be able to get over this. Timothy, for instance, wouldn't be allowed to go into synagogues. This would cause a great hindrance as Paul would first go into synagogues to preach the gospel when he entered a city. Now, on the other hand, if these were believing Jews, it would also be a hindrance. If these were instead believing Jews, Christian Jews, whom Paul sought to encourage, well, they may still be bound to cultural influence and practice. Never underestimate cultural influence in a person's life. It's a thing that is very hard to shake. And so, either way, if they were unbelieving Jews whom he sought to evangelize, if they were believing Jews whom he sought to encourage, Timothy's uncircumcision was going to get in the way. It was an obstacle. So what does Timothy do? Timothy waves his rights so there would be no obstacle to the work of God. Do we see that? You see, Timothy was a Christian, saved by the grace of God, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Timothy was at perfect liberty to not do this. He was at perfect liberty, but he did. Because to Timothy, the advancement of the gospel was more important to him than his rights. Do we see that? See, Paul, he wasn't against circumcision. He was never against circumcision. Circumcision wasn't the issue. The issue was trusting in anything else for salvation. It was trusting in a work in order to be saved. You're saved by grace alone plus, grace plus, grace plus, nothing plus. That was Paul's message, or nothing, just grace and grace alone. It, did, it, didn't, it didn't matter what the, what the thing was. That's why the, he, he adamantly opposed the Judaizers. Why? Because they were preaching a false gospel. However, that's not the situation here. The situation is different. These are not Judaizers. These are ethnic Jews with expectations for how a Jewish man is supposed to live. You see, a, a similar situation happens later in Scripture. In Acts 16, the issue is circumcision. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, what's the issue? The issue is food sacrifice to idols. Well, what's happening in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8? You have these Corinthians, these pagans, they're being saved, praise God. They're coming out of a pagan culture, praise God. But here's the thing, you have some of these these, these Christians who were saved from this pagan lifestyle who have no problem eating food that was sacrificed to idols. You see, similar to when Pastor Caleb, he once told the story, he, we went to Brazil and they had these shrines up to these pagan gods and they would offer food to the pagan gods. And then, he, you know, funny enough, he told a funny anecdote how he would go over there and steal the food from the shrines and he would eat it and that would be his breakfast. Well, some of these Christians who were saved from this pagan lifestyle, they were offended by people who did stuff like that. They were offended because they thought it was a sin to eat this food that was sacrificed to idols, particularly meat, meat sold in, in, in marketplaces that had been sacrificed, used in pagan ritual. But Paul, what does he say? He says, listen, it, it, that's not really the problem you know, you, you, you have, you have a, div- a division. You have some uh, Christians who are saying, hey, listen, an idol is nothing. An idol doesn't even exist. An idol is a figment of a person's imagination. The food sacrificed to an idol is nothing. It has not been defiled, and so they eat of it freely. However, you have other Christians who don't have the same view. Paul says that their conscience is weak, They have a weak conscience, and it offends them. So what does Paul do? Well, he has to solve the issue, and so he writes to them. And what does he say? He says, listen, guys, in 1 Corinthians 8, listen. 
the food. You, you as a Christian are a perfect liberty to eat. However, if your food, if, if your appetite, if, if you eating this food causes your fellow Christians, your fellow brethren to stumble, if by you exercising your right, your Christian liberty, causes other brothers in Christ, whom Christ died for, as he says, to stumble, then abstain from it. Forgo your rights. Relinquish your rights. 1 Corinthians 8.13, therefore, Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. There's a principle here, a principle that Paul is exercising and Timothy is exercising in this chapter. What's that principle? Brotherly affection over exercising rights. Brotherly affection over exercising rights. And my question is, would you do the same? We as Christians, we have rights. Do you use that for the advancement of the gospel, or do you use it in a way that hinders the gospel, that impedes the gospel? You see, these things, these things were trifles. These were trivial issues. Paul, Timothy, they understood, listen, Death and hell are moving. People are dying, and they are going to hell. We don't have time to worry about foolish things such as circumcision. There are greater things at stake. We don't have time to worry about foolish little trifles and tri trivial matters such as food sacrificed to idols. And so Timothy says, if a piece of flesh is an obstacle in the way of the advancement of the gospel, then may that obstacle be removed. I have a right not to, but I will, out of love. Love for the Jews and love for my God. Let me give you an illustration of this. If you go to North Shore Baptist Church, that was a church that was our parent church back before we merged when we were uh, RGF. If you go over there, one thing that I find is any man that's in the pulpit, Ed Moore especially, he's always wearing a suit. And any man that brings the Word of God to them on a Sunday morning is always wearing a suit. No less than a tie. Now, now why do they do this? They do this because that, that is the, the culture that they have at that congregation. They're, they're more formal than us. And any man that goes there that is asked to preach, they ask them, please wear a suit. Now, why? Does the suit make them more righteous? Does the suit save them? Does it make them more holy? Does the suit make them a better preacher? If that were a case, I'd never take a suit off. I'd sleep in a, in a, in a suit. I'd take a shower in a suit if that were the case. No, that's not the case. Oh, is, does, the, is, does, the suit, does the suit display a reverence towards God, a respect and honoring of God? Maybe, maybe. If that is why you wear a suit, then praise God. That's good reason. However, that's not always the case. I know men that they wear amazing suits, expensive suits, suits that cost more than probably all our clothes here combined, that they have zero reverence from God. Uh, Joel Osteen, uh, uh, Kenneth Copeland. Their suits are incredibly expensive, and they wear it all the time. Are they righteous? Do they have reverence for God? I'd beg to differ. On the other hand, I know men who've preached wearing a T-shirt who have great reverence for, reverence for God. No, the suit does not make you more holy, does not make you a better preacher, does not necessarily display reverence for God. We went to camp a couple months ago, right? Camp, there's like, what, like three sermons a day, something like that? By the end of the week, for like five days straight, by the end of the week, in that little chapel, that little sanctuary that we were in, after we've been in the hot sun, the summer sun all day, sweating with like a hundred, over a hundred children, that place smells terrible, Nobody looks presentable, much less the people bringing the word that day. They're not wearing a suit. 
Yet those are some of the greatest sermons I ever heard in my life. No, then, then why do they do this? Why, when they go to North Shore, they have this culture, they wear these suits? It's because that is what the congregation is accustomed to, and that's not wrong. That's what they're used to. And, and there's a simple reality that when, when people, they're used, to exp- they're, they're used to having a man that's going to bring them the word of God that they to present himself in a certain attire, and when that expectation is not met, it imposes a distraction. It, it's, 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 it's a reality that you could be preaching about the most glorious news ever, ever given. You could be preaching about the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You could be preaching about Christ and the cross, God and salvation, death and hell, yet there's always somebody that they can't get over the fact that somebody is wearing a polo shirt preaching. Now listen, that's a trifle. That's a trivial thing. Christian need not wear a suit. These people in the first century, suits weren't even invented. But the men of God who go and preach the word there will sacrifice their right, their liberty, in order to not be a hindrance. Do we see that? Sacrifice the unimportant stuff, the trivial stuff, the trifles for the important things. Sacrificing our rights, our liberties. Now, a suit is nothing. Putting on a suit, that's one thing. Timothy was told to go undergo surgery, and he did it out of love. Imagine that conversation. Uh, yo, Timothy, um, I don't know how to tell this to you, man, but I think that if you... Go and get circumcised, it's going to be a good idea. And the Bible, funny enough, it doesn't tell us that even, he even had any, any like argument, any dissension with Paul. He just goes, okay. It's funny, but what love Timothy had. How selfless that he did such a thing. Brotherly affection and consideration, over-consideration for yourself, your preferences, and your rights. Let me give you another illustration. I think illustrations are helpful. Let's pretend, for instance, there's, you're part of a congregation, and there's somebody, uh, a Christian, uh, and they were saved from a life uh, of alcoholism, for example. And you, you're having a dinner party, and you're going to invite people from the congregation. Now, you know That because maybe this person suffered with alcoholism in their life, they now view the drink as a vile thing. Now, are Christians at liberty to drink alcohol? I would say yes. Jesus turned water into wine. Yes, in moderation, it's a very good thing. But because this brother has such a bad past with such a thing, he now is very sensitive to it. His conscience is easily defiled by the presence of it, and now he believes that it is of itself sinful for a Christian to partake of. Now let me ask you, if you're having this dinner party, you know he won't like that to be there. Would you exercise brotherly affection foremost and say, listen, everybody else, we know this is our brother's struggle. We know this is his, uh, what he suffered with, what God has saved him out of, but we know that uh, his mind, his conscience is still uh, sensitive to these things, seared by these things. Let us abstain from partaking of our liberty, from exercising our liberty to drink. And let's not have any of that present at this gathering. Or would you instead puff out your chest and say, that's his problem. I have that right. Can't tell us what to do. They can't tell us that we we can't eat meat sacrificed to idols. That's their problem, Paul. They They can't force me to be circumcised. That's their problem, Paul. I have Christian liberty. See the difference? One is brotherly affection, one is not. One is selfless, one is selfish. See, Timothy knew, he knew there's more important things at stake here 
we can't get bogged down by these little issues. And so he submits, forsakes his rights and say, if that's going to get in the way, it's better if it just doesn't get in the way. Circumcise me, Paul. Not for salvation, not for righteousness, but for the Jews, out of love for them. I mean, that's what the Beatitudes say, blessed is the peacemaker. Blessed is the peacemaker. What does that mean? Does that mean we're supposed to be pacifists? Does that mean we're supposed to be hippies? No. Christians are called soldiers. We're supposed to wage war. But here's the thing. Wage war on the things that actually matter. Christians, there are hills to die on and there's hills to not die on. The wise man knows the difference. Paul knew the difference. When it came to the Judaizers who were saying, uh, this is a a sine qua non. This is something that needs to be uh, 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 established first. They have to first be circumcised or they're not saved. Paul would not get down from that hill. He said, no, we're saved by grace and grace alone. And he fought vehemently, fiercely, fervently. But when it came to this matter, which was nothing more than a trivial matter, in order to just not offend cultural sensibilities, Paul and Timothy to decide, listen, this is not a hill worth dying on. Blessed is the peacemaker. Don't cause division and wars over things that don't matter. How many times do we get into fights over trivial things with our families? with our loved ones, things that don't matter. If you're going to fight and go to war, Christian, go go to war over things that matter. Read the book of Acts. Paul is in war, fighting for the glory of his God and for the salvation of souls. That was a battle worth fighting, not this. Give up your rights. Men love their rights. You know who is the greatest man who ever lived on this earth? Christ. You know what Christ did? Gave up his rights. Right? The only being who had any true rights at all gave them up for worms like you and me. If our Lord, if our elder brother did that, shall we not do the same? Yes. Let us do the same. Number two, Paul's plans. Paul's plans, point two. Look at verses six through seven. And they went through all the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and perhaps Luke, because Luke's the writer and he's saying we later on, they had plans. And what were their plans? Were they bad plans or were they good plans? No, they're pretty good plans. I'd say they're very good plans. Plans to spread the gospel. Yet, what does it say? It says that they were prevented. We as people, we have our plans. We think we know what's best for us. We think we know what's best for others. I mean, from when, you, when you're young, right, what do they say? They put you in a circle in kindergarten class. They're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are your plans? We begin to form plans young. Plans as to what we will be, who we will be with, where we will go, what we will do. We do that for ourselves. Parents, you do it for your children. We all have our expectations, Right? Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Paul had plans. Paul had plans to spread the gospel in Asia Minor and Bithynia. 
But it's written that they were forbidden and that they were not allowed. Now the question is this, who on earth would forbid them? Who forbade them? Who didn't allow them? Notice what the, what the scripture doesn't say. It doesn't say this. It doesn't say it was the devil. It doesn't say it was a demon. It doesn't say it was a demonic force. It doesn't say it was, it was Satan who forbade them. And it doesn't say that it was people. Though people could have been perhaps the instruments. No. Rather, what does it say? Look what it says. It says in verse 6, and the Holy Spirit, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word. It was the Holy Spirit who forbade them from speaking. And then the next verse, and it was the Spirit of Jesus who did not allow them to go into Bithynia. God, the scripture says, it was God. God is said to be the primary agent in confounding Paul's plans. Now, that's a little strange, don't you think? Why? Because what were Paul's plans? To spread the gospel. And what are God's plans? To spread the gospel. Isn't that the Great Commission? Why on earth would God prevent the spreading of his gospel? I mean, Paul's plans were good. Paul's plans were in the context of God's will. He knew the Great Commission. He knew what his, his idea was. And he's like, hey, uh, uh, Timothy, uh, Silas, uh, uh, Luke, let, let's go to Asia. Let's go to Bithynia. And God says no. Why would he do this? Well, again, this is the providence of God and the sovereignty of God at work. Whose gospel is Paul spreading? God's gospel. And God... Sovereign as he is, Lord as he is, he gives it to whom he wishes when he wishes. Paul had good plans. Paul had great plans. Paul had plans better than many of, of my plans, most of my plans, perhaps most of your plans. They were better plans than most, but they were not the best plans. God had the best plans. Let's continue, verses 8 to 10. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia, help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. What on earth just happened? By way of a vision, God communicated his plan to Paul. This is famous. It's known as the Macedonian call. Many people, they'll use the phrase, many missionaries, they'll use the phrase, I had a, a Macedonian call. And then I say, no, you didn't. I had a vision in the night. I had to go over here. No. Looks like the Christmas carol in here. What does Scrooge say? It's a bit of uncooked potato. You're seeing things. This was a specific event for a particular time. God operated like this, in this unique fashion, for a specific time in the life of Paul. And what does he say? He says, listen, you're not going to open your mouth in Asia, Paul, and you're not going to go to Bithynia. No, instead, you're going to go to Macedonia. Macedonia was not even in the mind of Paul. But as God so often did in the life of Paul, what did he do? He frustrated his plans. And look what Paul does. Paul goes immediately. He's not a rebel prophet. He's not Jonah. Jonah, go over there and preach the word. Nah. What? We know how that turned out. I can imagine Jonah. I mean, you know when you do something really dumb and then you're facing the consequences of it and you're in the middle of the, of the negative consequences and you're like, man, that was really stupid. I can imagine Jonah in the belly of a fish just there like, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Paul, he, he knew about Jonah. He didn't do that. And more importantly, Paul, he had experienced this himself. He had experienced God frustrating and confounding his plans earlier in his life. What am I talking about? The Damascus Road. 
What on earth is happening in the Damascus Road? Paul, he's a Pharisee. He's, in his mind, doing the work of God. What's the work of God to him? Go and persecute the Christians. And so he's going to Damascus for the sole purpose of persecuting Christians. And what does God do? God saves him. What were Paul's plans? Kill the Christians. What was, Paul, what was God's plans? Paul's plans, kill Christians. God's plans, take the guy that is the most vehement, the most adamant about persecuting the church and turn him into the instrument that, I will, that he will use to most encourage and build up the church. Isn't it funny how God works? That's so ironic. It's not going to stop. It's happening here. It happened there in the, in the past. It's happening now in the present. In, in chapter 16, it's going to happen again. Paul, I'm going to go to Rome. I'm going to sail there. Nah, you're going to get shipwrecked. Paul says he got shipwrecked three times. My goodness. So Paul, he goes immediately. Paul knew from experience. If God says go... I'm going to go. I'm not going to ask questions. Paul laid down his plans. Why? For the sake of the gospel. And what are we seeing at work? The providence of God. God had a plan. And unlike our plans, they always come to pass. We don't know what's best for us. You see, we think we know what we need in order to grow. We, we think we know what we need in order to be sanctified, grow in holiness, conformity to Christ. We think we, we know what God needs in order to make his church grow. God doesn't need your plans. God doesn't need my plans. God knows how to sanctify you. He knows how to build his church. He doesn't need men with plans. He doesn't need men with strategies. I dare to say he doesn't need men at all. God could lift up rocks to do the work of a missionary. God could raise a people for his own possession from stones. Rather, he wants men who will forsake their own plans, their own ideas, and submit to his own. Our plans never involve suffering. Our plans never involve difficulty. You know what's funny? That's how we always, you could always tell, is it my plans or God's plans? Usually, our plans never involve suffering. I mean, you never think, hey, tell you what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in my car and I'm going to, you know, uh, run into a light pole today. You know, I'm going to go through some suffering tomorrow, next week. You know, I have it scheduled. Uh, can you meet me for lunch tomorrow? Nah, I got some uh, tribulation to go through. No. No. But God's plans often involve trials and tribulations and difficulty. Oh, that's like a swear word in today's culture, difficulty. But God uses the fires of tribulation to burn all the dross away. That's how you're sanctified. James, have joy in the midst of your trials. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God called you according to his purpose. And he works all things for the good of his people. People, let us hold our plans very, very loosely like Paul did. James 14, 13, 4, not 14, 4, 13 to 16, it says this. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we're gonna, we, we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yeah, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. How often we boast it like that? On Thursdays, Caleb Barnu, he'll text me. I don't know where he is right now. Caleb Barnu, he'll text me and he'll say, listen, there he is. What songs do you want uh, for, for youth group tomorrow night? And then, you know, he'll send me some and I'll tell him, oh, we're gonna, let's do these ones. And then I'll say, okay, see you tomorrow. And you know what he'll say? He'll correct me. Uh-uh, if the Lord wills, you'll see me tomorrow. You might die tomorrow. I might die tomorrow. There might be 
the, the providence of God may, may bring us somewhere else. If the Lord wills, men love to make plans. Let's be a people who love God's more. Paul had plans, had his mind set upon them, spread the gospel, Asia and Bithynia. God's plans comes, he submits to them immediately. Oh, and a side note, you say, oh, those poor Bithynians, those poor, Asi- those poor uh, Asians in the region of Asia Minor, they didn't hear the gospel. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1. this is how Peter, the apostle Peter, introduces his epistle. Look, at, look to whom it's addressed, this letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, Christians, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The gospel got to them in God's timing, in God's providence, in God's way. I was at a dinner one night at the Drew's house. Thomas Drew, I don't know where he is right now. And we were talking about prayer. And I said, you know, God, he answers uh, prayer always. There's never an unanswered prayer. He either says yes or no. I thought I was being pretty clever, pretty profound. He looked at me and says, nah, you missed something. He'll say yes, he'll say no, and sometimes he'll say not yet. I want to go to Bithynia and Asia. Not yet, Paul. The gospel will get to them in my timing. Surrender your rights. Surrender your plans. Look to God's providence. And last and briefly, Lydia's choice. Verses 11 to 12. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some Days. Now, Troas, what's Troas? Troas is a seaport on the Aegean Sea, so they go there. And then from Troas, they go to Samothrace. Samothrace is like this little island. It's a prominent island in the North Aegean Sea. It's where vessels, they would regularly stop. And then they go to Neapolis, and finally, they arrive at Philippi. Philippi, if you know anything about history, this is in the region of Macedon. And before the, the Romans came about, it was ruled by a man called uh, Philip II of Macedon. Now, you know him by his offspring, his son. This was the father of Alexander the Great. Continue, verse 13, 14. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Who's this woman named Lydia? Well, it's said that she's from Thyatira, which is a city in Asia, known for wool and dyeing. And most likely, she's very wealthy. Why do you say that? Well, because she was a seller of purple dye or, or purple uh, clothing, fabrics. Purple was a dye that was very expensive to make. It was the... It was the the color of royalty for, in, the, in, the, in uh, ancient times because it, it, it took hundreds, thousands of mollusks to produce just a gram of purple. So she's probably wealthy. And she's a worshiper of God. Doesn't mean she's a Jew. She's not even a proselyte. She's kind of like Cornelius or like the Ethiopian eunuch. She was religious but she wasn't a full convert to Judaism. And now, why does Paul and company go to this riverside? Well, it's probably because there was no synagogue in Philippi. Because, and the reason I say that is because often Paul would go to the synagogue first, to the Jews first, then the Greeks. But there probably wasn't a synagogue. You know, in order to constitute a synagogue, it required ten men, ten Jewish men, heads of household. So it's probably not there. So they go to this riverside where there's this gathering of prayer. And there's this woman, and he starts preaching, like, as he always does. And then here's the main point that I want to consider. And the Lord opened her heart. Whose heart? Lydia's heart. 
the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The NASB, New American Standard, says this, to respond to what Paul said. What is this? This is the doctrine of regeneration. This is the doctrine of election. Lydia was saved by God's regenerating work, and her salvation was no coincidence or contingency. You see, men, we can open many things. I could open a door. I could open a window. My mom, when I was younger, and uh, I misbehaved, she would say, I'm going to open your head. Now, all those things we can, we can do, even figuratively, we can do. But the thing that men can't do, we cannot open a human heart. The human heart is a sealed fortress, sealed in by its deadness in sins and transgressions. I call this point Lydia's choice, uh, more accurately, Lydia's lack of choice. You see, Lydia, like all human beings, we cannot choose God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Man cannot regenerate themselves. If you're a Christian here today, you're saved and you're saved alone by the regenerating work of God. By the regenerating work of God. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And we see here the Father opening Lydia's heart to pay attention. If you're here and you're a Christian, you're saved because God opened your heart. The providence of God. God orchestrated all these events. God, look at this. God took Paul, confounded his plans, frustrated his plans, to send him to Macedonia to save a woman. And she's the first convert in Europe. Brother and sister, if you're saved here today, it's not coincidence. It wasn't a possibility. In the mind of God, God, he predestined your salvation from before time began. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Amen. We can't save ourselves. Lydia couldn't save herself. This whole chapter, you see God having a plan. And the men of God, what what do we see if there's an application? What do we see? They laid down their plans in favor of God's. They didn't let their rights get in the way. They didn't let their expectations, their plans get in the way. And thank God that he doesn't let our choice of him get in the way. Of of his people, if you're saved, if this is how wicked men are. They're, They're hanging by a crevice off a cliff. And God, he outstretches his hand. He says, come to me and be saved. And men would rather spit in the face of God and slap the hand away. The only reason Lydia was able to choose Christ was because first Christ chose her. That's the reason I preach the gospel, because God, and only the gospel, I don't try to use moral stories, I don't try to be funny, I don't try to tickle your ears, I don't try to say what you want, I say the gospel, why? Because in scripture, the gospel is the only thing that God promises to use to save his people. The gospel is the catalyst. The gospel is the sine qua non. It is the condition, is the preaching of his word that he uses to save men. This Holy Spirit operates through the preaching of God's word. I thank God it does. No Christian then that you could never have chosen God unless God had chosen you. So what? What What do I ask you then? Lay down your pride and give glory to him. You say, I chose God because I was smarter. 
I was born into the right family, the right circumstances. I, I had more knowledge. It, I, I, I wasn't as prideful or as evil as other people in the world. No. By saying that you robbed God of glory, you were saved because God had mercy on you. God's sovereign to give salvation to whom he wishes. And God's providence saved you. He planned it before time began. And so I end with saying this. Give up your rights, lay down your plans, and realize that you are saved foremost because of God's choice, not your own. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that we be a people who are not humanistic. Lord, this life, may we surrender all to you, Lord. It's not about us. It was never about us, Lord. As one man said, there's only one hero in this story, and that is Christ. We are but the wicked who have been saved. Thank you, Lord that you sent your son. And during this Advent season, Father, may we remember that Christ came for his chosen people, for sinners, O oh God. He laid down his rights. May we do the same. You had plans, may we submit to them. And you chose us when we couldn't choose you. In Jesus' name, I pray these things in thanksgiving and praise and honor to your glory, O oh God. Amen.